0: If you're a regular Geek's Guide to the Galaxy listener, please rate and review us on iTunes or using the podcast app on your phone. We currently have 922 five-star ratings, and it would be great to get that up to a 1,000. And I want to give a special thank you to Leonard Titangia, who just gave us this five-star review. Episode 433 is a joy to hear. Every podcast is wonderful in the show, and David is such a good interviewer, but this one on the Bill & Ted trilogy is another level everyone on the panel and David are a joy to listen to as they casually converse as old friends who are also brilliantly knowledgeable about the subject. It just puts everything together with a good fun subject to create a masterpiece of expression. So big thanks again to Leonard to for that great review. All right. So now let's get to our show.
1: Wired.com presents the geeks guide to the galaxy and here is
0: your host david barr kirtley hello and welcome to episode 441 of geek's guide to the galaxy today on the show we'll be discussing dreams and science fiction and this may include spoilers for the books and movies we discuss including the cell inception coma and the lathe of heaven so just be aware of that and i'm joined by three guests so first up we've got anthony Ha making his 22nd appearance on the show. He covers media, advertising, and pop culture for TechCrunch, where he also hosts the podcast original content. A chapbook of his short stories called Love Songs for Monsters was published by Youth in Decline in 2014, and his short story Late Train appeared in the February 2019 issue of Lady Churchill's Rosebud Rislet. So, Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. The next up, we've got Sarah Lynn Mishner, making her 19th appearance on the show. She's a trans-supporting Ravenclaw Trekkie maker-feminist who writes at Medium and lives in Connecticut with a Renaissance engineer and a small zoo. So, Sarah, welcome to the show.
2: Happy to be here.
0: And also joining us today is Lisa Yazik, making her sixth appearance on the show. She's Regent's Professor of Science Fiction Studies at Georgia Tech, and author of the nonfiction books Galactic Suburbia, Sisters of Tomorrow, and The Future is Female. She also appears in the AMC miniseries James Cameron's Story of Science Fiction. So, Lisa, welcome to the show.
3: It's great to be here. Thanks.
0: Okay, so when it comes to dreams in science fiction, I think the movie Inception is probably the best known example. So Anthony, do you think that Inception deserves to be the number one dreams in science fiction movie?
1: I think it, yeah, I think that's fair um, in the sense that it is, you know, just well executed and I think explores the idea in interesting ways. I mean, I do have reservations about the film, which we can also talk about, but um, what has been striking to me as we've had the preparation for this episode is also how there just isn't quite as much as I would have expected, that there's so much dream fantasy fiction. And, and certainly there is uh, a number of science fiction examples too, but it seems a lot less, uh, you know, that they're just... You know, it's like the number one in a relatively limited field.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, it's in a relatively limited field and not all of the entries in that field are particularly strong either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, so how about um, how about Sarah? What do you think about Inception? Number one.
2: Um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things where deserve is, is a whole other, it's a very loaded term, but I think I (laughs) can understand why it would be seen culturally that way. Um, I mean, when, you know, when, when we all saw the movie the first time, it was just utterly mind blowing. Um, and it was really, I think one of the strengths with it is that, uh, you know, it, in, in, in a lot of ways, it was a very technical film that was, uh, you really had to pay attention, close attention to follow it. Um. But at the same time, you know, they really didn't shirk on character development. Like, for example, the whole um, scenario with uh, Leo DiCaprio, uh, his character Cobb, uh, talking about his um, his the trauma that he went through with his wife. And I have used this example or talked about this movie in therapy multiple times where you're sort of. Going down into the basement of your subconscious to deal with this thing that is so painful that it's actually f- something that you fear. It's, it, there's a ton of, of sort of this mammalian fear response. And I remember feeling that for the character while watching the film. So it just feels like one of those movies where it's so dense. It has a lot of, uh, rich character development and, you know, talks about ideas bigger, I think, than even just the mindfuckery that that exists as structurally for the plot.
0: Yeah. I mean I think Inception's super cool. I mean I remembered liking it. I remembered actually the uh I thought the snow battle went on a little, kind of dragged on a little too long, but otherwise I remembered yeah. liking it, you know, quite a bit. And I you know, especially like I've watched so many movies recently where I, I really had to struggle to get through them. And I had no trouble getting through Inception on on Rewatch. And I was sort of struck by just how much of the movie is Exposition is sort of explaining the sort of arbitrary, sort of nonsensical rules of this world, <laughs> but it's like riveting the whole time. You know, uh, yeah. uh, there's just something so stylish and, um, yeah, inventive about it that, um, you know, I, I forgive it all of its, uh, exposition. And you sa- somebody said, um, you have to pay attention to follow what's going on. I, even following, even paying attention, I'm not sure I really follow what's going on. Um, but <laughs> I still, uh, I still enjoy it yeah. quite a bit. Um, so how about Lisa? How do you feel about Inception? Number one dreams in science fiction movie?
3: Um, you know, I, I, I'm with everything everyone's already said, I can see why a lot of people see it as a really major uh, cultural touchstone. And I agree with Anthony, there's, also, you'd think there would be more science fiction dream stories. But I think you know, in a world where we have cyberspace, you have other ways and to represent the virtual and the fantastic. So you don't get that many. I think this is good. I've watched it four times now, I still can't figure out the plot. And, <laughs> uh, but I like that. That's cool. I think that's cool. I don't know if I would say it's number one alone, though, I feel like, you know, obviously, it's a small, small group. But I feel that a, a number of the dream movies that have come out recently, and that we were talking about as we prepped for this, like the cell and uh, which is actually older and the coma, which is new, I, I think that they have almost as much merit in some ways in terms of of style and thinking through big ideas. And visually, the cell, you guys is so pretty. I mean, I, I just my yeah. vote has to go for <laughs> that just because the costumes and the visuals and, you know, these are dreams. And I want to see lush dreamlike visuals with them. and And they all have beautiful visuals. But the cell will always have my heart because of Jennifer Lopez's outfits. And that's just where <laughs> I'm at.
0: <laughs> well, well so, um, so on Rotten Tomatoes, Inception is 87%. And the cell and coma are 45% and 43%. So critics seem to think that Inception is quite a bit better than those other two. Uh, do you think, Lisa, that the mm-hmm. critics are just wrong? Or do you sort of see where they're coming from? No.
3: Oh, I see 100% where they're coming from. And I'm sure that what everyone likes about Inception is just what everyone likes about every PKD movie is that it's super sexy and we don't know what the real reality is at the end. Whereas like in the cell, you're pretty clear where baseline reality is. So, you know, it's in some ways, um, I think Inception has that more sort of new wavy vibe that film people really like and and that open kind of ending. And that's perfectly cool. Um, but I do think people right now value those kinds of stories with those endings where you don't know what's going on more than one that has a pretty clear ending and, and both the cell and coma, you know, you know where the reality is at the end for sure. So I see it and that's cool. I I'm just not going to give up on my own personal opinion here (laughs) i for the underdogs, I guess.
0: (laughs) Well, I think, yeah, I think the cell and coma might be, you know, sufficiently less well known that I should just explain the premise for people who might not have seen them. So in the cell, there's a serial killer who's in a coma and um, Jennifer Lopez has to kind of like go into his mind, into his dreams to try to get clues about where he's, um, there's a, a woman that he's abducted and, and so that the police can, uh, so the FBI can find her. And then Coma, which is a a recent Russian movie, um, the, the premise is that if you're in a coma, your mind goes to this um, sort of fantasy world and everyone who's in a coma ends up in the same place where the world is constructed out of memories so there's all these like just weird buildings floating in the sky and just whatever bits of uh geography that people remember are all just kind of like glued together in weird um fractal patterns um and actually both coma and the cell have amazing visuals uh as you mentioned lisa I, i mean like you have to give them credit in that department but um yeah, going back to Sarah, what did you think? Uh, how do you think that *Coma* and *The Cell* compare to *Inception*?
2: Um, I agree with that. I, I think that uh, one of the things I really appreciated about *The Cell* is that, um, you know, uh, it's, in so many ways, some of, some especially the the um, the present day scenes, right? They feel super dated. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I remember <laughs> going to see *The Cell* with my sister. You know. 20 years ago, however long it's been. And when I rewatched it, you know, this month, it was like, wow, okay, 20 years is a really long time because you get that sense that, you know, uh, time It's like the slow motion shot of the FBI running with, you know, their suits (laughs) flapping in the in the wind. Like I was like, "Oh, come on!" (laughs) Like it, you know, there was this sort of like '90s ultra cool idea of the FBI that's baked into that movie. Um, And so stuff like that ends up pretty dated, um, especially since we now have a little bit more of a sophisticated idea of those things. But um, you know, the the dreams though could have been filmed yesterday, as far as I'm concerned. Like that's that, you know, all of those sequences didn't feel dated at all, which, you know, is surprising given how much, you know, sort of early CGI was used. Um, But I also really appreciated that the cell did not take advantage of sort of victimization tropes. Um, I kept expecting to be triggered and I was not. Like, you know, there were a lot of, uh, just the way that, they created a villain who was not raping these characters and then putting them in these situations like he had a very different way of being a villain and of you know still obviously being this horrible person and psychopath but not in the in the tropey ways that have in many ways mm. followed since um even with the you know Jennifer Lopez character they didn't really put her together romantically with, uh, the Vince Vaughn character, I think, uh, in the way that you would expect. And so I actually really appreciated that too, from a feminist perspective, they, you know, Mm -hmm. did, they were not gratuitous in a movie that they, they, I certainly expected that.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you like you, Sarah, I saw the cell when it came out and I remembered it being not very good, but the dream sequences really stuck in my mind. And it was really striking going back and watching it, how I completely, I forgot that Vince Vaughn was in this movie. Like it was really, you know, <laughs> I had forgotten that there was just, just how much of the, to see how much of the movie was just these really paint by numbers, run of the mill, um, serial killer hunt stuff. When I feel like the focus of the movie should have been much more on Jennifer Lopez and what's going on in the dreams, which, you know, is, is what makes this movie distinctive and is just, you know, they, they apparently they drew on, um, a bunch of real art, like, um, you know, art, like paintings and sculptures and stuff for the dream sequences. And they're really, really striking. Um,
2: yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, I actually saw it. was, it's funny. There's, there's one where she sees a horse chopped up into different sections. And I actually saw that piece that was at the, um, the, uh, MoMA, I think, uh, there was a big controversy over that, that whole exhibit Yeah. that, um, I don't know if I want to need to get into at the moment, but, um, but yeah, but anyway, I think the movie should have focused more on dreams. Um, so how about Anthony? Yes. What, what did you think? Uh, do you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree that the dream sequences are really what make um, the cells so memorable. And, and, you know, I can just still think of, like, specific imagery, um, particularly, um, I think probably my favorite thing is just the way – um, the serial killer, the Vincent D'Onofrio character visualizes himself and that he's like divided into these two different identities, but there's this sort of like God King in his own, um, mind. And, and that was just so terrifying and beautiful at the same time. And, um, I think there's just sequence after sequence like that in the film. And then there's this whole other movie that's mostly just, a repeat of silence of the lambs um and you know not necessarily badly done <laughs> yes. but not done that well either it's you're like it's fine i mean yeah. i would say my other criticism and i wish that this had come through in the um somehow found a way to do this in the dream sequences was that the jennifer lopez character remains pretty much a cipher for me for most of the movie or not a cipher but she just is not there's nothing particularly interesting about her character you just get this kind of maternal protective side, but, but as a lead, um, I didn't find her that, I mean, I, you know, Jennifer Lopez is incredibly charismatic, so I didn't mind that much, but for a film that is ostensibly an exploration of character, I didn't find any of the characters that
0: memorable. Yeah. What did you think, Anthony of coma, just overall thoughts? Oh, uh, I liked it a lot. I was very
1: (laughs) skeptical just because I hadn't heard about it. Um, and, It had sort of two, at least the version that I rented on Fandango now, which is just like the default movie rental on on a Roku TV, um, was dubbed and not dubbed particularly well. And it also has just obviously not top budget CGI. And so the whole thing has this kind of video gamey look to it. And so at first, I was very, very resistant and thinking it wasn't going to be good, but once we started to see more of the world, once you just got used to the fact that the CGI had a slightly kind of, you know, fake sheen to it, um, I thought, like, there were a lot of great images, there were a lot of really interesting ideas. I wasn't crazy about maybe the, the final act where a lot of, there's, you know, some twists that are not, I didn't find super interesting, but I'm, I'm glad I saw it. I actually liked it a lot more than I was expecting.
0: That's interesting. Cause I actually kind of liked the twists toward the end. Whereas sort of for the first half, I was like, Oh, this is so derivative of the, of the matrix. I just couldn't get, get mm-hmm. over that. I did think the one thing I really liked was the idea that the, um, so, so as I mentioned, they're in this coma dream world, the shared world. And in this world, there are these kind of like oily monsters with glowing yellow eyes. And we find out that people who are, um, who are brain dead, but who are being kept alive on life support appear in this world as these, as these monsters. And I thought that was kind of an, in, an inventive idea. Um, but, um, but Sarah, overall thoughts on coma?
2: Yeah, I, I thought there were certainly some very interesting things about it, especially just the question of, you know, the for the people who were, uh, either severely disabled or severely depressed or whatever, uh, had caused them to, you know, become, uh, abducted essentially and put in this position that they chose to stay, that they wanted to stay Um and I think that was um uh, one of the more interesting parts of the film and it's almost a shame that we didn't get the reveal earlier and then have more of the film be about that fight because that's to me when I, I think it got much much more interesting Um, you know because I, I would have liked to see them explore that a little bit more
0: I gotta mention every time there's anything involving cults, gotta have Sarah on to. <laughs> give her <opinion>.
2: That's right. <laughs> now everybody's gonna think I was in a cult. I was not in a cult. <laughs> I just understand cults because I was raised religious.
0: Yeah, but did did you like the cult? The way the cult, like, did, was that effective? You thought the way the cult was portrayed in the Oh movie? yeah.
2: Oh, yeah, totally. It was it was really terrifying. I mean, one of my earliest dreams, I had a recurring dream when I was a child about what I can only imagine now was either hell or war or something in between. I just remember being surrounded by bodies. Some people were dead, some were in pain. Um, and I had this dream multiple times. And as dark and as spooky as it was, I wasn't a part of it. I was an observer feeling pity for the people around me. And I went to my mother and climbed into her lap and, you know, told her what happened. And she held me, but she told me I was the victim of what she called, quote, spiritual warfare, uh, and that the enemy, quote unquote, was out to get me, which is the devil. And, you know, for a five, six-year-old to hear this, expecting comfort and <laughs> getting the opposite, you know, being told that the devil is after you and that's why you're having nightmares, you yeah. know? I was fairly disturbed by that. Um, and so, you know, I've always been sort of fascinated by dreams. But I do think that sort of the the way that people just buy into stuff entirely and bypass so many other logical uh, processes in their brain and everything to, to really be committed to it is continually fascinating and terrifying to me
0: it It's interesting, Sarah, that you bring up uh like a real dream that you have because there's this whole vocabulary in movies of what a dream is like, you know, like oftentimes there'll be doors with weird angles and like weirdly colored lights or like light shining from the background in a weird way and things like that, and I find like this never really captures to me what it what my dreams at least actually are like um and so uh so I guess I'll just throw that out there um Lisa, do you feel like? Like watching these movies? Do you feel like, oh, yeah, this is what a dream is like? Or is there something that doesn't quite ring true about it?
3: No, no, I don't think it's at all what dreams are like. I mean, dreams are at some level, they're non-narrative, like it's almost impossible to like narratively translate your experience of a dream to other people, right? And film has to give you, well, it doesn't have to give you a narrative, but the kinds of films we're talking about eventually do want to give you a narrative. So they don't feel at all alike to me. I, I agree with you. It feels like there's um, a lexicon for dreams or a grammar for it in in certainly visual science fiction and possibly even print science fiction if I've thought about it. In fact, I know there's a grammar for it in print science fiction too. Um, so, but I think that that's okay because we see it and we know that this is how we're translating a dream and it works pretty effectively. Um, I think it draws a lot on Western traditions of like surrealism and things like that. So it may not be a universal representation of dreams, the way way we see them, but, you know, it's cool. Um, And I liked Coma. I want to go back because I didn't get a chance to talk about it. Um, But as I was watching it, I just wanted to say, I came up with the elevator pitch for it. You know how you got to have your 25-word elevator pitch? It was, Coma is the Matrix meets Inception meets the Lego movie meets Doctor Strange meets the X-Men with a perfectly (laughs) cynical Blade Runner-type ending. (laughs) <laughs> and, and 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 i kind of liked it actually for all those reasons um you know like dave like you like the I, it's like i love the visuals i actually like the janky kind of video game quality of it anthony um i think that that would hail a lot of younger uh viewers actually and it kind of hailed me as someone who thinks about mm. video games um i think that that becomes another way we signal dream these days is it looks like a video game or it looks like cyberspace, whatever that means to us. they're all those same non spaces um, so i, I kind of liked it, and then I got sick of all the tropes, and then I liked how they all turned around at the end and uh i've I've been teaching some Russian science fiction, and I liked that there were some moments that felt to me very Russian, and I thought that that was cool it didn't feel. 100% western and familiar to me and i and and i dug that i thought in a movie about dreams that was perfect
0: could you give an example
3: yeah i can actually the guy who plays the soldier character who gets infected with the reaper um and you know how at first you're like okay he's like the space jock or the si- or the science fiction soldier and you like you know the character type and then you're like oh okay he's been infected this is kind of like lord of the rings oh i forgot to put lord of the rings in my uh in my elevator pitch, shoot. But anyways, right? So then he's <laughs> infected. Um, but what I like is that in the end, he does this thing that you often see in both Soviet and Russian science fiction, where like the group is every bit as important in the narrative as the individuals. And he does those sort of things where, you know, he does the right thing in the end. And I loved how he became. I I don't want to spoil the movie for people, but I love his final transformation at the end. I thought that it redeemed the character and sort of celebrated the communal ethos in a way you don't always see in American science fiction. I felt his character would have been punished in an American science fiction movie for going bad, even though it wasn't his fault. And I liked here that the movie recognized that he tried to do the right thing for the team. I thought that was cool and it feels like a lot of Russian science fiction.
0: Yeah, it was, it was actually this movie and I hadn't heard anyone talk about it or seen any reviews or anything. I just came across it on iTunes and I watched the trailer and I was like, Oh, this looks really cool. And, you know, it was, it intrigued me that it was Russian because other than Tarkovsky, I don't know if I can really think of that many Russian science fiction movies that I've seen. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, that's just what kind of got me thinking about all other Mm -hmm. dream, um, science fiction things. Um, but I want to um, come back to Anthony because, Anthony, you uh, read two books for this, which I really appreciate. That's right. So you read uh, The Lathe of Heaven by Ursula Gwynn and The Dream Master by Roger Zelazny. So I guess actually let's start with The Dream Master because that's kind of um, – I wanted to talk about that in relation to The Cell because they're both movies in which the sort of psychologist character goes into somebody else's dreams in an attempt to heal them. Um, I mean, I guess that's just part of the story in the cell, but, um, how did you think, how would you like contrast the dream master with, uh, with the cell? I mean,
1: I would say that they're probably about as different a treatment of that idea as you can imagine. I mean, even leaving aside the sort of difference in medium where the the dream sequences in the cell are kind of what the whole thing is about. And it's about this sort of dive into the serial killers psychology and um, into this just this sort of very kind of nightmarish space um, and in the Dream master it felt much more well I mean the, the character who whose mind we're going into is is very different because um, it, it's she's a, a woman who is was born blind, but wants to become sort of, I forget the exact name, but, but basically a, a shaper of a, a person who can also become this sort of like dream psychiatric doctor. And so she, in order to be able to do that, she, he, this uh, the current doctor is trying to introduce her to vision and, and to help her understand what it is to see. And so you get, um, there is this sort of unsettling quality to the, those sequences in the book where, where he, creates environments for her. And then there's sort of this, a little bit of this subtle battle between their their two desires, but it's, I think, much more quiet, especially in the beginning um, where you don't get, you know, uh, giant monsters or, or scary scenes in that way. It's much more like, oh, that didn't go exactly the way I wanted it to. Oh, like what why did this element of the dream play out this way? Um, I would also say the other striking theme of the dream master is that as I recall, like I think relatively little of the book actually takes place in those sequences, like very long stretches of it are in the, you know, conscious waking world and more about um, the psychiatrist character, his relationship with his family, his relationship with this patient outside the, um, the dreams and, and so, um, there's a lot of, I mean, different elements in, in the book and the, the dream part was, was smaller than I expected.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is my first time reading this and I mean, Roger Zelazny is my favorite author. This is pretty early and it was, um, a, uh, expanded from a, uh, a, a novella, I think that I think won the Nebula award. Um, and he always is so cool and always writes with such style and so many, um, mythological illusions and you know breadth of knowledge i think he was a psychology major so he obviously know his stuff when it comes to psychology i sort of felt like um a lot of this had been was sort of like added just to get it up to novel length um because a lot of it to me didn't seem necessarily to relate to the to the central story but um i don't know like sarah you also read the dream master right what did you kind of what did you think of it
2: yeah um and you know i mean something that that came went through my mind a lot with both of the books both uh The lathe of Heaven and The Dream Master is you know a lot of the stuff that in terms of plot is stuff that we've since seen and a big part of me is like oh man I wish I had you know read this years ago before my imagination had been spoiled by <laughs> you know movies that have taken these uh you know and run with it taken these ideas and run with it when you know when they would have been more fresh um but I think one of the things that that makes them so charming, uh, both of them, is, you know, the richness of language. Um, and that both books are, you know, definitely serious literature. It's not just, you know, a, a sci-fi story that you might read in science fiction magazine that, you know, has a certain style to it, like uh, PKD, but not not an art uh, that uh, I never found that anyway about PKD, I'm sorry. But, you know, it's <laughs> it's much more beautiful writing. And I think that it's it's reassuring in a way because you're like, on the one hand, a lot of these plots I've seen repeated over and over again. But on the other hand, it almost doesn't matter because the richness of the worlds that are being created here is unique and descriptive enough and rich enough that you feel, you know, that you're experiencing it from a different perspective.
0: Yeah, well, so so, so Zelazny he sold this idea to Hollywood and he didn't write the screenplay, but they they sort of adapted it very loosely into a 1984 movie called Dreamscape, which I did watch. And it's quite illustrative to <laughs> compare the two because, you know, the, the Zelazny book, it's full of – I just wrote down a couple of things. Like, you know, you you want to read this book, you better know uh, Song of Myself by Walt Whitman, The Lady of Shalott. Uh, you better be familiar with mythological figures like Orestes and Corabantes uh Young's concept of emantia dromia, uh Shankara catechism. I mean all this stuff. And then in the movie version, there's like Dennis Quaid is psychic and he's like your typical sort of like dick bag conceited Hollywood hero. <laughs> and he the only reference to anything is a reference to wait, this is this is good. The Oh uh, what is it? The something people um we're told in the movie that the the Senoi people of Malaysia raise their kids to um, have control over their dreams and that dreams are central to their culture. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I go look that. I look up the Senoi people on Wikipedia, and we find um, that this whole idea is based on a guy named Kilton Stewart, who wrote a book about the Senoi, and that he was basically trying to pass off his own New Age ideas as theirs. And this page notes, later researchers were unable to substantiate Stewart's account. The annoyed themselves have never heard of this theory and have never practiced it. Have never practiced it. They reject the possibility of dream control as nonsense. So, uh, <laughs> just giving you an idea of the contrast between the novel and the movie. Um, but yes, but so also, um, Sarah was bringing up there The Lathe of Heaven by Ursula K. Le Guin. Um, I guess I'll just very quickly describe the premise. Um so there's a uh there's a an ordinary guy and he doesn't want to dream because every time he dreams, he wakes up and whatever he dreamed about has come true. And they assign him this sort of government psychologist. This is in a some sort of vaguely dystopian future and the psychologist uh has a machine that can kind of um hypnotize him or do um whatever what do you call it hypnotic suggestion or something to control what he dreams about and the psychologist tries to use this guy's dreams to create a utopian world uh, i love this book i read it 20 years ago um it was actually at when i was a student at the clarion workshop in 99 uh tim powers and karen joy fowler recommended a book you know a specific book to each person like a personalized recommendation and this was the book that they recommended for me um, but so let's get uh Lisa in here. Um so Lisa, what do you have you read We yeah. of Heaven? Do you have any opinions about this? Oh,
3: yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um uh I've read it many times long ago. Um but yeah, I looked at it again before the show. I, I like it. I think it's a great story. Um and I like how human the protagonist is, right? Um, you know, I, the the mad scientist guy who uses him, I find less interesting. But I like is I like that George Orr, right? That's his name, and um, I like just what a guy he is. I think it's kind of cool. He has this like amazing ability, but he's just such a guy. And it's like all he wants is to like get some version of his lo- beloved back, and um, it, it's it's funny that he has this just sort of. <sighs> you know, obviously, literally earth changing kind of power. And and what he wants is so humble. There's something about this story I find very powerful in that contrast. Um, another interesting thing, though, that always happens to me with Lathe of Heaven is I, I always mix it up with uh, John Varley's overdrawn at the memory bank. And this is just more to my point that I think dream stories and, cy- and cyberspace stories are kind of the same thing. Um, and it's no surprise to me that they were both made into PBS films right around the same time as well, because they're both about people who are trapped in these realities sort of of their making, but not entirely of their own making. And they have to figure out how to negotiate them, which is obviously a metaphor for all of us in the world we continue to live in today. When I say that, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. OK, I'm going to stop right there for a minute, then go on to <laughs> someone else.
0: <laughs> uh, well, so uh, so Anthony, what do you think of Wave of the Heaven? Um, I, I thought it was great. It was, um,
1: I'm sort of a little, as somebody who loves Le Guin as much as I do and loves Philip K. Dick, um, it's, it's a little embarrassing to me that it took me so long to get around to reading it. Um, and I would say that there is a little bit of a sense of, you know, I think sort of the shorthand people sometimes use for the book is, is Ursula Guin doing Philip K. Dick, Uh, I guess that's the elevator pitch. Um, and, and I think that it's not quite like, I don't necessarily love it quite as much as, my favorite Le Guin books or as my favorite Philip K. Dick books. But that's like a really, really high bar. Cause those are basically my favorite books in the world. Um, and this is maybe slightly below that. Um, and I think that in a lot of ways, the, the dream stuff is not the most interesting thing about the, um, about the story to me. I mean, there is like, she, she does a very good job of just showing these shifting realities and going from one world to the next. and, um, George trying to figure out what has happened because in, a, in a, for a long time he can't even remember what the instructions right. were that that led to this dream and led to this new world. Um, I think what's probably the most interesting about the book to me is that I think there's a fairly common trope in science fiction, both written and filmed, of that the person who kind of like wants to change the world is kind of dangerous and scary, and and that there's this implicit endorsement of the the status quo you know the, the person who like the mad scientist who wants to like fight climate change and then it goes horribly wrong and I think this and and then in, in a lot of cases that's not really um question it's just the idea of okay here's this you know radical revolutionary and they must be stopped um here I think it's like a really serious exploration of this idea of like why is this that that the whole time you get the sense that the psychiatrist manipulating the dreams um, isn't necessarily a great person, but his te- intentions are good, that he wants to build a better society. Um, that, you know, he certainly does things to benefit himself at the same time, but that most of the big changes he makes are because he thinks it's going to lead to a better world. And George, the dreamer is very, very committed to this idea that he should not be doing this. Um, And I mean, there's certainly a lot of evidence in terms of just how the world gets very strange and chaotic um, that he shouldn't be. But I I think this book expresses that philosophy, that idea of like, hey, like, if you really want to change the world, be careful what you wish for better than pretty much anything else I can think of.
0: Yeah. So actually, let me just explain. So yeah, so every time the psychologist or psychiatrist tries to change the world uh at least after the first couple of times it goes wrong in some way like a wish you know where like he tries to get rid of racism and uh and then when george wakes up everyone is just has this sort of gray skin um and he tries to create world peace and suddenly earth is united against this alien threat that never existed before stuff like that Um i'm glad you said the thing about like you know it's, is it not so simple that, um, Haber, the, the doctor is the bad guy? Because I don't remember if the, I just watched the PBS special. It's been a long time since I read the book. So I don't remember if this line is in the book or not. But, uh, at one point in the show, Haber says, we've made more progress in six weeks than humanity has in the past 6,000 years. Mm, and when I he says that, that yeah. when he says that, I'm kind of like, wow, it's hard to necessarily just, dis- it's hard to dismiss that out of hands, that, uh, that point. Um, But, um, but yeah, so Sarah, what did you, uh, what did you think of? Wave of Heaven?
2: Yeah, um, it's funny that, that Anthony mentioned that because I think Anthony and I had the same kind of, uh, disagreement on Twitter about Watchmen and Lady Tro. Um, I was thinking of that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, because for me, I mean, I, I actually think it was sort of my favorite part of the book is the tension between these two characters both of whom are essentially trying to save the world. But one of them is trying to do it in a proactive way. And the other one is trying to do it in a reactive way, you know, in a, in a fixing what, you know, what happened because of the proactive way. Um, And, uh, you know, again, like one of the things that you're raised with when you're raised religious is the horrible things that can happen uh, when people try to do good, when people have good intentions And so for me, you know, I, I, not only do I think it's realistic, I think it's, uh, an important story to tell in science fiction over and over again, uh, of these characters who, because they're trying to save the world, they make decisions that they're really not equipped to make. They don't have the right to make those decisions. You know, like it's the same way that, uh, you know, in the Avengers, the, character who snaps his fingers and half the world population disappears, um, you know, that might be a, a, a logical decision to make if there were literally no other way. But you you don't have the right to make that choice for the people who end up disappeared, right? And so I think that, you know, the tension between those two characters um, was the most interesting part to me. And also, it it struck me as very it's a very sort of feminine problem to think about because in a way, you know, sort of the George character was sort of almost feminine and uh the doctor character was almost, you know, sort of the masculine way or of the controlling way of trying to save the world. Um, Whereas George was sort of saving it in this very introspective way and saying, well, you know, yes, we cured racism by making everybody the same color, but we lost all of this beautiful diversity we lost all of this texture and people don't really seem you know yes they're peaceful but they also just don't seem very interesting anymore um so yeah i mean i think that was kind of my favorite part of of the book
0: yeah i mean on wikipedia it describes the conflict in this book i think is positivism versus taoism which
3: taoism yeah i was gonna say
0: which i mean i, I think that sorry <laughs> i think the title is is a, a taoist uh reference but um yeah. But it gives you a sense of that this book is actually really about something. And I think that, unfortunately, the PBS um, adaptation is so sort of, you know, kind of low budget and I think it was made in 1980. It sort, of, But it feels very 70s. Like, yeah. I don't know how appealing it would be to audiences today, but I feel like a really well done adaptation of this would be the number one dreams in science fiction movie. I mean, it's it's just about so much more yeah. than, than Inception really is. Um, but uh, but so, Lisa, I can tell you're anxious to. Get back in here.
3: Huh? No, I was just, oh no, I was just gonna say, I think there was a lathe of having update, wasn't there? I'm I'm pretty sure someone actually did do an yeah, update, maybe there, in 2000?
0: Yeah, I found references to one that was, yeah, around 2000, 2002, but it's not, it's yeah. only on DVD. I couldn't find any way to easily yeah, watch it.
3: Me neither. Yeah. No, that's what I was gonna say.
0: But it wasn't uh, the PBS 1981, at least. You know, by reputation is supposed to be better. And, and I, I guess Le Guin was more mm-hmm. heavily involved with and happier with the, the 1981. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, so I don't, but apparently the, the 2001 wasn't that, I mean, the, the fact that it's not available would indicate <laughs> to me it wasn't a smashing artistic success, but you know, I, I haven't seen it. Um, I guess I have a bunch of other things I could bring up here. Um, I, okay. Well, so one thing I wanted to mention is that, um, when you have this idea of the dream master and um, you know, the therapist going into somebody's dreams to uh to help heal them psychologically, I was I was describing this premise to my to my girlfriend Steph, who's really into uh into psychology and stuff, and she was saying, "Oh, is this like Freudianism?" And uh, and I was like, "Well, yeah, it was written in 1966, so it's very Freudian." And um, you know, I think my understanding is that the field of psychology has kind of moved on and, you know, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is sort of the uh, state of the art um, is my understanding. But I feel like Freudianism and, and Jungian psychology is so rich for fiction. Uh, You you know, if you want to tell a story about psychology uh, I feel like, you know, Freudianism just offers you so much. And this whole idea, like in way of heaven that psychologists or therapists are sinister I feel like it's much easier to tell a story about a sinister, sinister therapist in a Freudian context, where where it's all like you know hypnosis and like your dreams and secrets and this this kind of sense that you're you know that you're not in control and the the therapist knows all these things about you that you don't know. And so I thought it would be I'm interesting. I'm totally
2: thinking of Dead Again.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well. So so Sarah, do you want to jump jump in there?
2: Oh, I was just mentioning uh, you know, the the film Dead Again, the uh Kenneth Brunner and Emma Thompson film, which I love. There's yeah, all love these it. crazy flashbacks to, you know, when them in the nineteen forties that are so beautifully done. Uh but that's totally a movie we could have talked about. Because uh, you know, the the this business of the therapist using hypnosis to go back and you know, basically back in time for the audience um but then the things that are uncovered that you know and the way that these these people's lives connect you know 40 years later uh super fascinating
1: yeah i'm not familiar it's funny cuz it it doesn't um like my own experience with um therapy is so completely different um I, I haven't done a lot of um cognitive behavioral therapy but just like sort of general talk therapy is Feels like the opposite of like you know sinister mastermind pulling the th- strings. Although maybe that just means they're doing it really well. But um, <laughs> I think what's also telling though is that in both Lathe of Heaven* and um, uh, *The Dream Master*, is that yes, I think ultimately you sort of there's a sense that the that the you know psychiatrist is either sort of the the villain or or the antihero or or you know it has some sort of tragic flaw. But like in neither case is it that. The, the sort of simple villainy of, and and I guess this is what I was talking about a little before of, of just, hey, I want to use my power to manipulate this person to get what I want. It's much more, oh, I, I want to, you know, I, I believe that what I'm doing is the right thing. And, and that, you know, I
0: have this tremendous power, and I want to use it in the right way. Yeah. I mean, Lisa, what do you think about, do you have any, uh, any feelings about how science fiction, how real world psychologists relate to science fiction?
3: Oh, I have all kinds of feelings about this, but, um, you know, yeah, (laughs) I, I think that, um, (laughs) I mean, we see psychology. I was actually thinking about this. We see psychology in dreams as far back as Forbidden Planet, um, As a lot of you might remember, the key to sort of Mm -hmm. figuring out that movie, it's a movie from the 1950s where uh, humans have to go to this other planet where there was a scientific expedition. Humans have been supposedly trapped there for 20 years. Most of them died. One is left. They have to try to figure out the mystery of what's happened on this planet. And it all revolves around uh, this machine that can tap into people's psyches and... uh, and uh, project them. So essentially, your dreams come to life uh, and your nightmares, as it turns out, because one scientist's mind, the mad scientist, right, his mind becomes writ large and wreaks havoc on this world. So I think that that's interesting. And, and especially because there are certain points within Forbidden Planet where people have dreams and they wake up from them. And later on, you realize everyone's dreams are kind of clues to the larger pattern of what's going on. So we've definitely seen this in science fiction for a while, um, you know, certainly before Life of Heaven and then definitely up through it. I was thinking about, we see a lot of movies uh, or a lot of interest in, right, psychiatrists and dreams throughout the new wave, right? So Le Guin was not the only one writing these kinds of stories in the 1960s and 70s. I think Philip K. Dick is a good example uh, that we chatted about a little bit before this show um we could talk about either *Ubik* or i think there's another one is it the um shoot the eldritch palmer palmer story the i think three the, three stigmatized stigmatized of palmer, the Eldritch Palmer. Eldritch. yeah yeah that one also is about dreams right
0: what's about sort of drug-induced yes, hallucinations right. yeah
1: right and, yeah, well, and i think also yeah, there's I'm a, not sure a how question how. of like everything in dick is in dick is sort of dreamlike to an extent <laughs>
0: yeah. I, I, that i sure mind. so I, I meant to mention too that um you know when I think there used to be this idea that your dreams were – in psychology, that your dreams were super, super important and um symbolically right. laden and meaningful. And so the ability to go into someone else's dreams, therefore, would be equally important. Right. Whereas I feel like – I think a lot of maybe the more modern scientific view is that your dreams are just sort of random. <laughs> I don't know. They, they don't really mean anything. Ah. Um
2: ah. No? <laughs> I've had dreams that came true. Uh I am I am like I have I tend to have rich dreams in general um when I was a child I was in a furniture store I was like 9 years old and I saw a large poster of Picasso's Guernica and I was sort of captivated by it it's very stark there are, it's all achromatic colors it's visually striking Uh, There's depictions of sort of distorted faces of women and children in pain. Um, And I was struck by it. And I remember staring at it and being afraid of it at the same time. And I went home that night and I had a nightmare about it. And the memory of the dream stuck with me because it was incredibly visually evocative of all of these Picasso like faces, these, you know, sort of uh, bizarrely shaped faces. But I. It it took me years later. I, you know, found out what the painting was about. You know that it was this, the about the bombing of civilians uh, in Guernica by Nazis during the Spanish Civil War, and it was an incredibly spooky experience to years later find out that this nightmare I had about this painting, uh, was on purpose. It was because Picasso you know, wanted to evoke these, these horrible things that were happening. And me as a sensitive child picked up on it on some level uh, subconsciously. So, you know, I, and I've had a number of dreams that, you know, something, I'll dream something and then seven years later it will happen. And I'm like, what the fuck? (laughs) It's very, it's crazy. And, you know, so I think that also one of the things that, you know, you have to understand is that different people dream differently uh some people don't remember their dreams at all, some of them remember them and remember that they went on for what feels like months. Some people have sort of more uh you know, sort of more visual dreams than others. So I I'm personally fascinated by them.
0: Well well, I mean this may not be correct, but I, I just just my sense of it is that there's like a growing body of scientific discourse that feels that dreams are just sort of random noise or something and whether that's true or not i I do wonder if that connects to uh dreams not being a more popular subject for science fiction books and movies you know in the past few decades and why things as as i think lisa was mentioning have moved more in the direction of virtual reality um as sort of you know i feel like dreams were sort of proto i think maybe lisa made the same point but we're sort of a proto virtual reality and then as virtual reality itself Mm -hmm. becomes more and more. Uh, of a real possibility, the idea of going into dreams comes to seem less and less um, intriguing to people.
2: One of the things that I read about a possible evolutionary purpose for dreams um, is that if we are struggling with a fear of something, uh, that, you know, w- if we dream about that fear, even if that fear is terrifying, then in a sense, your your brain is sort of rehearsing for whether, you know, to not freak out if this happens, um, that you are, you know, even if it's just, uh, you know, sort of abstracted dreams about feeling alone or, you know, your family dying or and somehow having to live on without them. And that somehow your brain in processing all of these fears and strange desires and impulses that you might have in your subconscious uh is your you're rehearsing for uh dealing with things in the future um and that it kind of gives your brain some cushioning so that we don't literally just collapse and just fall apart when bad things happen to us.
0: Yeah. I mean that maybe does anyone have any strong feelings on whether dreams are important or not or uh whether like uh, do people think there should be more Science fiction so, about dreams?
3: Actually, I think there is more. And um, I, I just thought of this right now. And I think what you want to do is look, maybe not so much in science fiction proper, because they are right in either you have to run it through psychology or the soft sciences or something, or you have to translate it into cyberpunk. But um, in maybe more, some of the, other speculative genres like Afrofuturism. I think there's a lot of uh, interest in in dreams. And I don't know if any of you know, there's a short story by um, Fenderson J. Lee Clark called The Secret Lives of the Nine Negro Teeth of George Washington. Do any of you know this story? I I do not. It's it's a marvelous story. Oh my gosh. I just just remembered it. I wish I had remembered it beforehand. I would have recommended everyone read it. But it's um, an alternate earth, where George Washington, he makes his dentures out of the teeth of uh, his slaves, but each tooth is imbued with the history of that slave. And so he dreams their history every night. And eventually this wow. leads him to free the slaves and uh, start, uh, start people on the path to what's going to be a black utopia in their future. And it's a really cool and powerful story. It just came out a couple of years ago and uh, 2018. And I just taught it to my students and like, they just went bananas. They loved it so much. They were like, they're like, oh my God, it's like fantasy, but it's science fiction because it's about dentures and that's a technology, <laughs> but it's about dreams and history. And it's that's a so cool, cool story. So yeah, so maybe what we need to be doing, someone had mentioned earlier that dreams seem more aligned with fantasy. And I know Clark sees himself as more of a fantasy writer. So maybe maybe it's in the other genres, in the fellow traveler speculative genres.
0: Could you, sorry, could you just repeat the title and author?
3: Yes. So this is... Um, Fenderson Jaley Clark. He usually goes by P period Jayley, D-J-E-L-I. And then his last name is Clark. And the story is called The Secret Lives of the Nine Negro Teeth of George Washington. And if you Google it, you can find copies of it online. And it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful story. It's, it's amazing. Everyone should go read it.
2: And that's awesome. I wish
3: I'd remembered it before.
2: Yeah, it's cool. Well, if he, if he does a if he does a show on Lovecraft Country, he could have people read that as uh, you know, it's very similar. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, right? Cuz
3: there are dreams that are real in Lovecraft Country. That's a great example, Sarah.
0: Yeah, I talk about that, please. I've, well, <laughs> I haven't seen Lovecraft's Country so um so I can't comment on it, but I mean, I was kind of curious to talk about dreams in science fiction specifically because I feel like if you're talking about dreams in fantasy, I mean, there's like an endless, you know, an infinite number of examples. Um, I I feel like pretty much any fantasy story probably has some prophetic dreamer or something in it. Um, Whereas, you know, you could probably hit all the the main ones in dreams and science fiction in 90 minutes. That was kind of the the idea anyway.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I like about the Clark story is it sits right at the crossroads of fantasy and science fiction. It's set in an alternate earth where magic is real but it but they also can tap into alternate realities where science is real and it's organized around the dentures right which is a scientific i mean that's a technological device so that's pretty cool it's a much smaller we we started here right that this it, it seems to be a much smaller pool of stories in the science fiction world
0: yeah well like you,
3: you you got some in the new wave and some in cyberpunk and then i don't know what
0: well, you did mention Lisa two examples for us to check out. One was "Before I Wake" by Kim Stanley Robinson, and mm, the other yeah. was "The Winter Market" by William Gibson. These are both short stories. Um, Anthony, did you read? You read at least one of these, right?
1: I, I read both of them. You read both, yeah, them? Um, and um, yeah, I, I thought like I liked both of them. I mean, the Robinson I really liked, um, and just thought. I mean, it's so different for him too because he tends to be much more write in a much more kind of rationalist realist mode but this is like his sort of version of i don't know like a dick or ballard story like very uh nightmarish um you want it just to describe I, I just describe like, uh, um th- i guess i'm, I'm it, i didn't completely get my head around it, but i think it's essentially that like the um people are like, something has happened to, like, the positioning of the earth, and so people's brains are working um differently. And so, like, the space between your dreams, your unconscious dream state and your conscious state has basically been destroyed. And so people are sort of, like, the, it's like this character constantly waking up into these, like, real but incredibly dreamlike environments. Or sometimes, well, occasionally, it's actual dreams.
0: Well, yeah, I think, I mean, I could have some of these de- these details wrong, but I think the basic idea is that the Earth has somehow passed into some sort of electromagnetic field, some novel electromagnetic right. field. It's the result of some cosmic phenomenon yes. or something, and it's caused people's brains to sort of be oscillating between normal waking and, and sort of a, a REM-like, REM sleep-like state, where they're basically either awake or sort of sleepwalking and kind of oscillating between the two. Um, so yeah, so, and this is a, you know, worldwide phenomenon, um, which has obviously been incredibly disruptive to human society. And the, um, story focuses on the, the, the main character is a a scientist who's trying to, um, devise a, a technological solution to this and, and whose physical and, and mental well-being is deteriorating throughout the story for obvious reasons. Um, so, so Lisa, do you want to say any more about why you, uh, yeah. recommended the story?
3: So I like it because I think in some ways it provides the urtext for things we see later in the Matrix and in Coma. Uh, this idea that if you're if you have the option to choose between the virtual world or the dream world and the real world, sometimes you're going to choose that virtual or dream world, and you have really good reasons for doing so. And uh, I like that it sets out that sort of challenge to which reality we should prefer, although I think our, our our main character would prefer to be back to real reality at some <laughs> point. <laughs> although, good luck with that. The ending suggests maybe. Um, but I, I'm with Anthony. I thought it was just cool because it's so different than what I usually expect from, from Stan Robinson as a mundane science fiction writer, as someone who tries to have uh, something very much like literary realism in some ways in his science fiction. Uh, and it was just so fantastic and delightful. But Having said that, you know, he's also a real fan of poetry, and and he's been experimenting with poetry in his recent novels. So in some ways, this felt like an early, almost poetic experience of Kim Stanley Robinson. Yeah. So I thought it was cool. No, I thought
0: it was just a one-off, for sure. Super cool story. And it's just, you know, um, I mean, it may be sort of out there, as you say, but I mean, it's not... You know, our minds are such a mystery. I, I guess the characters, in, I think I wrote it down, the characters mm-hmm. in the story makes make this point. Um, at one point, one of the characters says, we don't know what dreaming is. We don't know what sleep is. You only have to think about it a bit to realize we didn't know what consciousness itself was, what it meant to be awake. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think there, yeah. you know, we, we can't really have confidence that something like this wouldn't happen. You know, like so much of how our brains work is a complete mystery to us that could something disrupt it for everybody? I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> who knows? Uh, I think that's right. what's so scary about the story. Um, and so let's see. So, Sarah, you read um, the other one, right? Winter Market? Yeah. Do you want to say anything about that?
2: Um, just that, you know, I enjoyed it. it uh, again, it was really well-written and rich despite... Being like, a, I think it took me about an hour. So, um, it, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's sort of blending together with the other ones at this point. So, <laughs> but, uh, I remember, uh, enjoying the characters.
0: Yeah. So this is William Gibson. I, I, I found the audio file and I only had time to listen to about the first 20 minutes. But I, I think the thing that Lisa was drawing our attention to was that the main character kind of, Brings in artists and records their memories and then edits them and uh, sorry uh, records their dreams and and edits them and and sort of sells them as right. artistic commodities of some sort. Um, is that is that right?
2: Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the right, thing that so- I felt was I was sort of like I could see myself being the victim of this because as I have said, I've I have a crazy dream life, so I'm like this could totally happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> So none of you got to the end of the story because
3: that's where I mean I it's, it's interesting end, yeah. all the way through. Yeah. Oh yeah, right because oh okay, never mind cuz right because by the end it become I mean is she even going to be able to dream and be this guy, right? It's it's an interesting just sort of take on Hollywood because that's really right what this is is where Hollywood could go in this world. Um but I like the story because I like the idea of dreams becoming commodities, and that's not something we actually see in any of these other stories we've been talking about. They're they're kind of become these like techno-scientific tools, maybe like a way to get you from one place to another, or a cool location to explore. But the idea that you can just package a dream and sell it like a movie, like, I just think that's pretty mind blowing, actually. And I bet you a million dollars, I don't care how old that story is, if we could develop that technology today, someone would try to use it. This yeah, white. and it would be a
2: lot like I, I strange just, days if they did. It's people selling it on the black market. and
3: <laughs> Yeah.
2: Yeah. And the idea that people
3: might upload themselves and sell their souls to make, make this kind of art because they could, like, or their bodies or whatever. I mean, I don't know. It makes sense. Yeah. People sell what they can, right? And if you can sell your dreams, geez, I can imagine there would be a market for that for sure. The winter market. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, Anthony, was there anything else you wanted to say about that story?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, first of all, I just, I liked it a lot. I mean, I think Gibson is just a great, great short story writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, it also felt like an update of one of the other stories I, I mentioned during the, the prep, um, called Dreaming as a Private Thing by Isaac Asimov, which is also about like a, somebody building oh, a business yeah. around sort of productizing your dreams. Um, and right. one of the things that's sort of striking about both of them to me is how, I mean partly this is probably the, the just a reflection of of length, although winter market is actually fairly long um for a sh- i guess maybe novelette length um but that neither of them really gets into the dream space that much. it's much more about like what the- co- the the um company is what like the relationships of the different mm-hmm. creators are um and you don't actually um like so in the winter market there is this um Forget exactly what it's called, but she has some sort of um uh hit. Um I, I I don't know what the right word is, like album or or dream recording or or whatever it is. Um and you get like very tiny suggestive um bits of it, but but it, I think ni- neither of those, neither Asimov nor Gibson seems to like really want to go into like an extended description of what this dream art might look like. Um, And I mean, the other striking thing about the story to me is just the, um, the fact, I mean, Lisa's talked a number of times about the sort of comparisons between dreams and and cyberspace. And um, that in a lot of ways, because it doesn't have that many descriptions of, of the dream state, it feels like a very typical Gibson story. It's like, instead of cyberspace, there's dream art, but, it, it and in a lot of ways, you sort of plug the same Gibson concerns and characters around that.
0: Yeah, well, w- when you were talking about that, that was making me think that um, one thing, one idea that recurs in almost every one of these is the idea that if you die in your dream, you die in real life. And I feel like, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's just certain features of dreams that make them hard to dramatize, you know, and, and one is like, right. what are the stakes? Because if it just gets too scary, don't you just wake up? And it's sort of like, you know, doesn't make sense and all, and all this stuff. Yeah. And so I, I I think it's interesting that 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 so many of these stories converge on on this idea of, you know, in order to introduce stakes, it, the it death Yeah. That death death and danger have to be real. Or or ma- madness, you I know guess what? would be the other, at, thing, other
3: thing. And that's what I like about Winter Market, because it's also about about dreams and death and danger, but it mixes it differently, right? Because at the end Lise, who is considered to be profoundly disabled by the perspective of her a more or less able-bodied world um in the end she decides to basically sell herself to uh, a hollywood company and upload her consciousness into a mainframe so she can get out of her body which is 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 actually deteriorating pretty quickly um, for a variety of reasons and um right and and the gamble is they don't know if she's still going to be able to dream once she's an ai and at the end of the story, her human friends, her art friends won't talk to her anymore because they're scared about that too. And they don't want to know the answer. Um, I just think that that's cool. And because there, there's still death and danger and dreaming, but it's all organized differently. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so Lisa, do you want to talk a little bit? You you had a bunch of stuff about the history of dreams in science fiction. Um, yeah. And going back to Somnium and and all this kind of stuff. Do you want to just give us a quick... Um,
3: yeah, just... Sure. I had... You know, I'm a cultural historian. This is what I do. So I took a back a look back through history. And it's exactly like what uh, both Anthony and I think Sarah mentioned at the beginning that this is a... It's always been... This is a trope that's been in science fiction since the beginning, since its inception in Western history. But it's also been a pretty small trope with just a, a very small crew of people dabbling in it for whatever reasons. But having said that, you know, you can go all the way back to 1608 and look at Johann Kepler's Somnium, which used to be considered the first science fiction novel. Now we think it's one of the first science fiction novels. Um, and it's it's a dream narrative. And it's a dream narrative used to prove scientific points. Um, this was actually part of Kepler's uh, dissertation, what would we now call a PhD defense, when he was getting his doctorate. And he had written about issues of perspective and what it would look like to stand on the moon and look at the earth. And that was a 68 page handwritten mathematical thesis. And the people didn't use numbers in math. Then they wrote everything out longhand, which was apparently very confusing, especially when you were translating
0: oh to God. other uh, <laughs>
3: languages. <laughs> yes. Imagine. So he had written out this mathematical PhD in longhand. And, and so, and then he wanted to publish it popularly. So he decided to write what we would now call a science fiction novel to demonstrate the principles of it. And that's what Somnium is. And it's a dream narrative. And the uh, a, a number of things happen, but eventually our protagonist, who is a well-trained scientist, who's had miraculously the sort of same life that uh, Kepler had had himself, uh, falls into a dream and goes to the moon and explores the moon and sees the earth and proves all these mathematical principles. So, you know, it's something we've seen since the beginning, but there it's interesting because the dream, it, it's not really the dream space, I guess he's dreaming of the moon as a space and he's looking at it, but the dream is also just the way to get him to the moon to prove the mathematical principles. And, you know, we see dreams like that later on in the 19th century. I know we don't want to do fantasy, but I have to mention Mm -hmm. a Christmas Carol, right? Charles Dickinson's a Christmas Carol because it's a time travel story, but it uses dreams to move you through time and space. Um, so, so you know, we we see these stories coming on and off, and um, weirdly, this was like the weirdest thing I found, is that dream narratives were actually popular in science fiction in the early 1930s in amazing stories um, after Hugo Gernsback was forced out and his uh, second-in-command took over, T. O'Connor Sloan. And Sloan was a really well-known scientist and science uh, journalist, and he was all about mundane science fiction before that term ever existed, and he banned faster than light travel from science fiction stories in Amazing. So everyone had to figure out some way to get their people in outer space, and they went back to dream narratives of all weird things. So there you go. That's yeah. cool. So yeah, isn't that cool? I, I found it. So yeah, dreams as a way to travel through time and space. But again, before you have cyberspace or computers to help you do that.
0: Yeah, you also um Mark Twain's Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, which is, uh Yeah you know, Oh, gosh, yeah, of course. Science fiction. Uh,
3: totally, right? And again, the narrator, he gets in a fist fight with uh, one of his employees, and the employee chucks a um, wrench at him, and it knocks him into a coma, <laughs> <laughs> and then he travels back in time, right? So so again, so that trope of the coma even, yeah, hey, you guys, we just found It, it goes all the way back to the, to the 1800s um and i just one other one i would mention is that there's uh early feminist takes on this too and sarah so you'll probably like this one uh weird tales author dorothy quick she was the second most published woman in weird tales in the 30s and 40s she actually started writing science fiction in the 40s and 50s and she did a series called the patchwork quilt series and it's about a family of witches that make this patchwork quilt and they make in every history every uh patchwork is imbued with history. And when you sleep on it and touch it, you travel back to that time and go through that history from the perspective so of cool. other women. That's yeah, amazing. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, they're cool stories.
0: I'll also just mention, you know, I, I sent you guys this um, um, entry from the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, where it's it, the entry is called Dream Hacking. And they list a bunch of things. Um, some of the earliest ones are Peter Phillips' dreams are sacred. 1948, astounding. Um, John Brunner's City of the Tiger. Um, they mentioned this Zelazny, Pat Cadigan's Mind Players. Kim yes. The Nightmare, and Greg Bear's Queen of Angels. Are you? Have you? Are, I, I used to have Queen of Angels, but I never read it, unfortunately. But have you? Um, do you know anything about any of those?
3: I've read Queen of Angels, but I don't remember a ton about it. I do remember Pat Cadigan's Mind Players because that's one that literally merges the cyberpunk and dreaming tropes. And it's kind of the moment when everything crosses over each other. And it's another set of stories about uh, psychologists with questionable intentions. So <laughs> there you go.
0: Yeah, I hope no <laughs> psychologists listening to this. Take this, pers- take, this take this personally. It's oh, just-
3: no, they're cool, though. I mean, no, but not in a bad way, like in a sort of cool cyberpunk way, you know, just like they're just people in the world. She's not particularly heroic. Um, in fact, she's done some dicey stuff, and so she has to, you know, redeem herself and all that. But they're good; they're very noir. So, you know, throwing another level of storytelling on top of all this.
0: Hmm. Um. Yeah. So then, I haven't read this, but there's a novella by Karen Russell called "Sleep Donation," which definitely fits this theme. I wanted to mention. Um. But yeah, I think, and then like I also watched this uh, anime movie called Paprika, which sort of is the idea of, um, you know, there's this technology that allows people to share each other's dreams and then it starts being used kind of as a weapon and people are attacked by starting to dream while they're awake and, you know, being injured or, or or killed. Um, but I think that pretty much, that pretty much covers, you know, what we had, uh, you know, talked about. Um, are there any other things, any other, um, concepts or anything that people, uh, Wanted to mention uh, on this topic.
1: I guess I just wanted to bring up Ubik again and say that that is, you know, now yeah. that we sort of thought of that right before coming on, uh, is is a great one because it's. Um, I mean, it's sim- similar to coma in a way because, uh, uh, well, basically all the characters are are in comas. I think you find this out fairly early. This isn't a huge spoiler, um, but like that is, um, yeah, it's just like incredibly unsettling and and sort of playing with these these different layers of of reality and um and you know the different sort of psychologies of the different characters and and I yeah I just highly highly recommend it.
0: Yeah, I haven't read that's one of the Philip K Dick ones I haven't read, so I'll have to check that out.
3: Mm-hmm. Ubik is oh really it's really cool. Yeah, um I like it and again in some ways it really reminds me of um Winter Market and Pat Cadigan's Mind Players, which of course makes sense since Dick is kind of an early cyberpunk, but it's really thinking about the ways in which cybernetic technologies might interact with not just the body, but the mind and what kinds of realities uh, that might project. So,
0: yeah, cool. I guess also there were just two ideas in Inception I thought were really cool that I want to highlight. And one of them is that the characters carry these things they call totems, which are small objects. That have that are weighted in such a way that only you know, and so if you do it and it doesn't react right, you know that you're in somebody else's dream because no one else would know what how this thing is supposed to behave. Uh, so I thought that was a really cool idea, and this idea that certain high-profile individuals would undergo some sort of mental conditioning where their subconscious minds would attack. I guess in in this in the Inception world. Everyone's subconscious mind attacks intruders, but you can undergo this conditioning where your subconscious mind arms your projections with uh, machine guns and, you know, Humvees and all this kind of stuff. Um, I thought those were both really cool ideas that I, I haven't seen in any other, uh, in any other science fiction. Um, I guess if we have a couple minutes, I could tell my, my museum story. Um, so yeah, so I mentioned that. Yes. I mentioned that um, the, the the horse divided into different segments from the cell was this actual art exhibit. And there was this exhibit called Sensations, and it was supposed to be kind of confrontational art. And um, one of the pieces was uh, a picture of the Virgin Mary done by an African artist who used elephant dung, I think, in most or all of his, his paintings. And so this became a big controversy when they exhibited it. And, um, Rudy Giuliani, who was mayor of New York at the time, actually shut down a couple of subway stops to make it <laughs> harder for people to get to the museum. And, <laughs> and, and so then just like on, on principle, you know, my, my parents <laughs> and I went and went to this exhibit, um, and it was, it was, it was wild. Um, I don't know if there, there's probably still some webpage you could look at to see all the stuff, but it was pretty wild. But so we're there. And, um, so we, we saw the sensations exhibit and then we went down. They had a different exhibit, you know, more kind of conventional exhibit on the floor below. And while we were down there, we saw all of these security guards go charging up the stairs and we we're like, whoa, what's going on? And somebody had attacked that the, the piece I described, the, the Virgin Mary painting had attacked it with white paint. And it was like, it was behind a plexiglass shield and there was a guard stationed there permanently. And nevertheless, mm-hmm. somebody attacked it while we were there. And we saw the response. So oh,
2: man, that's my story. The piss Christ all over again. The crucifix <laughs> that is, uh, you know, in the bottle of urine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Same reaction. Mm-hmm. Freak out.
0: <laughs> I mean, I could be wrong, but I, I mean, the piss Christ was intended to be provocative. Whereas I'm not sure that this, it was. Yeah. It I'm was. not sure that this one, my, I could be wrong about this, but my understanding is that this was not intended necessarily to be, you know, Well and, and it's funny that, you know,
2: these people apparently never looked at the ingredients of what's in paint because there's some lot of weird shit in paint <laughs> in order to get those those pigments. You got to crush up, you know, a lot of bizarre things, beetles and, you know, there's definitely poop in paint. It's just, you know, in, in normal oh. paints. It's just there's all sorts of weird shit in there. So a weird so.
0: shit, literally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> All right, cool, well, so I know people have to go pretty soon, so um, why don't we start wrapping this up so, um, how about just some final thoughts on this whole project of watching dreams in science fiction movies and and reading the books and everything? so, um, Sarah, final thoughts.
2: My therapist told me I should start writing down my dreams, and uh then I uh read th- the the next day that Vladimir Dabakov used to, um, write his dreams down on index cards. Cause of course he wrote everything on index cards cause it allowed him to shuffle the, um, order of things. And so he kept a stack of index cards next to his bed. And in the morning he would write down any dreams that he had. Um, and so that is actually a practice that I would like to adopt because, um, you know, my therapist was basically like, look, you, you have all of these really rich dreams." why don't you ever you know keep a notebook of them keep track of them and i was like i don't know it never occurred to me and now that you know we've had this 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 podcast and everything i was like you know i, I really probably should do that so if you also have rich dreams that's that's something that you can do
0: there was i'm going to get this wrong there was somebody like henry ford or somebody like that who would um just as a habit he would fall asleep holding like metal balls in his hands so that when he fell asleep you know, they would fall on the floor and wake him up, because you wanted to spend as much time as possible. I think it's called hypnagogic sleep or something, and in, in the state kind of between being fully asleep and fully awake, because a lot of your most creative thinking happens when your brain is mm-hmm. kind of in that mm-hmm. in that yeah. place.
2: Yeah, it's wild.
0: Um, actually, Lisa, you said <laughs> it was funny. You said in w- in one of the emails, um, I I sent you guys the list of all the thing books I read and movies I watched, and you said your husband said, like, how, how am I okay or something? What what, what was that? <laughs>
3: yeah, well, well, I write on the whole list of everything you had gone through because was, I was so impressed. You had basically looked at everything we've been talking about for the last two weeks. And and my husband who's also a science fiction uh, professor and a former science fiction editor too, in a small way was like, was like, well, let, ask, ask Dave now, how does he feel after all of that? So Dave, how do you feel <laughs> after watching so many dream narratives and reading them? And thinking that maybe we should ask all of ourselves that. How are you feeling? <laughs> Very strange. Something else?
0: <laughs> I feel all right. But yeah, he was wondering if my uh, my sense of reality, if I was losing my grip on reality or that, yes. something. Yeah.
3: Well, right. Yeah. And I mean, this is an interesting time to be talking about all this, especially as we begin to talk about like social media bubbles and people constructing their own like news realities and things like that. It feels kind of weirdly timely to mm-hmm. talk about dreams um, in, in a whole bunch of different ways and different registers, quite frankly. But yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: How does it feel to talk about dreams? You can tell him that I am not okay at all.
0: <laughs> oh, Sarah,
2: no. How come? Why not? Oh, no. Is that a good thing or a bad thing?
3: Sometimes it's okay to be not okay. Do you know what I mean? Are you feeling very strange? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, that I've always been sort of fascinated by is that when I decided that I, you know, when I sort of deprogrammed myself from, from the religion in which I was raised, I was perfectly happy to just accept that there are lots of mysteries in life and I love mysteries and I'm okay with leaving them open ended. And a lot of the people I went to Christian school with had to replace that Christianity thing with something else. One person got super into horoscopes. One person got Way into Satanism, but they needed to replace that thing with something else that was equally, you know, going a little bit, probably too far. Uh, and, and so I, you know, I was very happy to just be comfortable with the fact that we don't know what happens after death. You know, we, we have no idea. You know, as, as Nabokov said, life is a great surprise. I don't see why death shouldn't be more of the same. So. <laughs> <laughs>
3: but isn't that i think that's so great and maybe that explains why i mean thinking about what sarah just said it isn't this exactly why we don't see that many dream narratives in science fiction because science fiction at its heart wants to explain everything right like it's not about the mystery it's about unraveling the mystery and explaining the mystery and yeah. dreams are not explicable right they're they're barely they you can barely articulate your dreams in any meaningful way um and science fiction is all about articulating the real.
2: Yeah. So. That makes sense. And that would explain why there's a lot yeah. more of it in fantasy because you can just do so much more with it. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting. I hadn't I didn't actually thought about that. But yeah, that it, the kind of people who write science fiction, especially hard science fiction, are maybe not the kind of people who are as interested in dreams um, as other people. Um, all right. But let's get a final thought. Anthony, any final thoughts? Sure. Um I would
1: say that actually just to tag on to that, I to me what is interesting about a lot of the things that we talked about today even if, you know, some of them particularly some of the movies are not entirely successful is the way that they're able to bring this kind of um this interest in in the surreal and the psychological into a sort of more you know quote unquote rationalist um genre. And so mm-hmm. for that reason I would actually revisit my earlier statement about Inception and say that Inception is not weird enough and is not psychological enough and is not surreal enough. So it is not my number one dream movie. And I'm <laughs> gonna go with Lisa and go with the,
3: the yeah. Cell.
0: Yeah well it's it's <laughs> Oh it's, wow. It's interesting because when when Inception came out, I remember really distinctly there was a uh, they they asked some dream experts what they thought of it. And the dream experts basically said what you're saying, that it's it's not weird enough to be dreams. But the, the one thing that they really liked was the part where Leonardo DiCaprio is in the big, like, I don't know, big mansion or whatever. And it just starts – get like, water starts pouring in, like, blasting in through all the windows. And it's because his body is being pushed into a bathtub full of water. And they said that that sort of – like, the intrusion of, you know, of sensory data into the dream, that that was really realistic. Whereas a lot of the other stuff, you know, was – you know, made a good thriller, but, but didn't really, you know, express what dreams are really like. So that's always stuck with me. But so, uh, so Lisa, final thought.
3: Um, sure. I thought maybe I'd said my final flats, but I can <laughs> do this again. Um, <laughs> I feel like such a professor here. I'm like, well, let me summarize what I said <laughs> earlier now, but, but actually what has been really cool for me as we've been exploring this was to see that even though it's a minor theme in science fiction it's certainly uh one that i think is really productive because of that tension between the rational and the irrational in some ways like it can be addressed through literariness or through sort of a deep dive into certain kinds of like psychological exploration like i think there's a reason like new wave authors and cyberpunk authors have maybe dealt with dreams more successfully than other science fiction authors but even having said that it's cool that i felt like If you look over the history of it, like in every period, people do what they got to do with dreams to make it work for science fiction. So Mm -hmm. in the the 1800s and early 1900s, right, which was all about transportation, they're like, yeah, dreams are a vehicle. They get you places. And I'm like, yeah, why not? You know, I mean, of course, sure. And uh, and then they become locations, right? Once we get to uh, the 60s and 70s and 80s, both as we're getting into like, Uh, psychology as a sort of popular party game. Like, right, everyone likes to play with psychology and look at dreams and things like that. And then, of course, like I said, cyberpunk, virtual reality feels like our dreams translated onto the screen or something like that. And um, it's interesting to see that dreams don't seem to have just a sort of single meaning or value in science fiction, but that they can be used in a number of different ways, none of which seem to actually accord with how dream psychologists talk about dreams. Hmm. So cool. (laughs) <laughs> or interesting, at least.
0: Yeah, that's cool. And I, I actually, you know, I didn't know that your your husband also was a science fiction professor. So that's interesting. So we'll have to talk about, I mean, let's not do it now, but let's talk about that sometime. So <laughs> oh, I'd be no. curious to hear more about no.
3: that. No, no. Oh, no. And we named our child after a cyberpunk protagonist. It's a horrible household. Right <laughs> it's terrifying.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so that, that's the, yeah, I don't know. It sounds pretty cool to me. But um, why don't we uh, wrap things up there? So we've been speaking with Anthony Ha, Sarah Lynn Mishner, and Lisa Yazik. So thanks everyone so much for joining us. Thank you.
2: Always fascinating. Thank you.
0: And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Anthony Ha, Sarah Lynn Mishner, and Lisa Yazik for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time.